Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to the book of First Chronicles. So, uh, if you've been with us over the last few weeks, you know that we have been marching through the Old Testament on a survey approach. And I say survey because you're going to see even this morning that we are going to cover um, almost 40 chapters. Um, and so, that's that's a lot of ground. We can do that. We've been covering many chapters at once as we walk over the Old Testament and survey. But in particular with First Chronicles and Second Chronicles, it makes itself even more available to us to do that. Let me explain why. As you look at the historical narrative of the Old Testament, it's found in six books. First and Second Samuel, First and Second King, First and Second Chronicle. Second Samuel, First King, and Second King have a, a a whole chunk of narrative of history that is repeated in first and second chronicle. So in as much as we've already walked through first and second Samuel and we're walking through first and second Kings, uh, we will cover all of this. So we thought we would do a bigger approach to first and second chronicle. So some of what you're hearing is going to be repeat from what you've heard uh, from Pastor Chad a couple weeks ago and will build off of what you heard from me, I guess now a month ago in first Samuel. I covered first Samuel about a month ago and a couple weeks ago, Pastor Chad covered second Samuel. So first and second chronicles is this morning we will be looking at chapter 1 of 1st Chronicle all the way to chapter 9 of 2nd Chronicle together. So obviously we're not going to be here for 4 to 8 hours, um, so it will be uh, quite an uh, overview. Before we do anything else, let's go to the Lord and let's just ask for help. Let's ask for help as, as we listen to His Word, as we digest His Word, and more than anything else, that it would bear fruit in our, in our souls and our lives. Let's pray. God, this is an awesome task to preach Your Word. It's an awesome task to listen to Your Word preached. It's the very words of God. And we as a body, we treasure it. We love it. We believe in it. We believe that this narrative written in the ancient Near East, written on the other side of the globe by what we would probably call a bunch of desert tribesmen today, It's Your Word to us this morning. And so, Father, I pray that You would give me help as a preacher. Lord, I pray that Your Spirit would guide as as the Word is preached. I pray for each listener. You know the needs of the souls represented. You know where Your Word should land. And Lord, You know how You will use it. I bank my trust this morning that You have given a Word for each soul and that You, O oh God, by Your Spirit, can bear kingdom fruit. That's our hope. That's where we are resting this morning. And so, Father, guide us. Let us trust in You. We ask this to You, Father. We ask it through the strong name of Jesus Christ and ask now that You'll apply it in our midst by Your Spirit. Amen. Um, well, as we dive in here, uh, I've entitled it, God's Plan for the Ages. Let me try to give you a little bit of a setting. Remember in 1 Samuel that the people begged there for a king. Um, they wanted a king that they could see, that they could hear and touch just like everybody else around them. And the exact way they put it to God is, we want a king like all the other nations. And obviously this was not seen uh, in the eyes of God as obedient or right. 
And it actually is this that will ultimately cost them dearly. To understand First and Second Chronicles, you need to understand this. It's actually written in hindsight. That is, I'm going to give you a quick glimpse of what's going to happen to the nation of Israel. What's going to happen is in the year 586, that will be the ultimate fall. There's a there's an empire, the Babylonian Empire. The Babylonian Empire in the year 586 uh, B.C. sweeps in and they take the people of Israel, um, of the, in particular there in the south, they take them all, they sack the city of Jerusalem, they completely demolish the temple and the way that the Babylonians did things... When they took over land, they took the people and they brought them back to Babylon. Somewhere around where it would be modern-day Iraq. So imagine a people going from modern-day Israel to modern-day Baghdad, and it's going to get you somewhere close to what that journey looked like. Well, after about 70 years or so, um, the exile ended in about... Uh, and the dates here get a little bit fuzzy, but somewhere around 100 years later... The uh, Mede-Persian Empire swoops in and they take over Babylon. So the Babylonian Empire literally is done overnight. It's recorded in the book of Daniel. God says exactly what's going to happen and it happens and it's finished. God judges the Babylonians for what they did to the Israelites. The Mede-Persian Empire had a different way of doing things. If they took you over, they didn't... Uh, try to localize everybody back to where they were, but more like what the Romans would later do and would be the strength of the Roman Empire, they actually let the people go back to their land and then they let you settle there, but you would be under a Persian king. And so God used this to let the Israelites come back under uh, to the land, to Jerusalem, to resettle, to even get funding to rebuild the temple. We'll see all this in a lot more detail as we march through. And so they're marching back into the land. And it is that story, that uh, it's that setting that First and Second Chronicles is written in where the author of First and Second Chronicles, sometimes we call him the chronicler, um, he, he explains to the people as they're marching back down what, uh, what had happened. That's the whole point of this book, to give them a context. So imagine... Imagine you're returning to the land. Imagine you're a, um, a father of a husband and a father of two, and you're trying to move your whole family back down to this land you've never been. You're trying to figure out about where you're going to work, where you're going to live, how things are going to look. You've only heard about this land. Or, or maybe you're a single young lady. And you are now marching down to this land. You have no idea what the next few years are going to look like. Uh, you're, you're going to try to resettle. You got a lot of decisions and things that are going to change in your life. And now you're moving down from, or actually up, uh, from, uh, uh, that journey from Babylon back to Israel. Um, or maybe you are an older man, a man well off in your years. You've grown up your entire life in exile. You've only heard stories from your grandparents of this land called Jerusalem. And now you're making a major transition. You're, you're, you're journeying back up. Now, if you take those different pictures, and there's lots of other pictures, you could situate yourself in there however you want. i got a funny feeling. It's not hard for you to imagine that the things of God, kingdom priorities, eternal realities, those are probably not 
on the forefront of your mind. There's a lot of other things that are on the forefront of your mind, right? That's why the book of First and Second Chronicles is written. The, the chronicler, he's trying to help them understand, let me give you a context of what you're marching back into. Let me explain to you what has happened, what God has done. So he is trying to give them an understanding of the purpose and the vision and a deep understanding of what God has done. We might say that he's attempting to create for them a meta-narrative. Now, the word meta-narrative means it's a story about all stories. That is, take any story you want, and this story is the story that all other stories are situated into. He wants them to believe in one grand story. Friend, I think you can relate with that. I think I can relate with this. In fact, I have related to that this week. I don't think it's hard for us to imagine living life, kind of focus, a lot of things we got to get done, do, and not have on the forefront of our minds God's major plan for all of mankind, <laughs> or His mission for the nations, or or His priorities for our lives, it's not hard for us to see how hard it is, or easy it is, to find ourselves focused on our story and lose sight of a meta-narrative, lose sight of a grand story. I am praying for a takeaway this morning. And the takeaway of the message is this, that as God's people... We must believe that the grand story, we must believe in the grand story of God and be on mission to see this accomplished across the earth. God's, as God's people, we must believe there's a grand story of God and that we've got to be on mission to see this accomplished across all of the earth. So, all that said, I hope we're going to be challenged to see that happen, happen in our homes, happen in our neighborhoods, happen across uh, even the world. I believe that can happen even in these 40 chapters. So first swoop is going to be Chronicles, First Chronicles 1 through 9. Um, Pastor Charlie, could you be kind enough to get me some water in here? I, I have the faith of like Elijah that there could be more in there, but I don't know. All right, um, so, all right, so, um, First Chronicles one through nine. Don't go to the pulpit with an empty water bottle. Um, all right, the first third of this book, nine chapters. Now, we just started a new Bible reading plan. You'll get to First Chronicles 1 through 9 at some point in this year. It's our goal at Cornerstone that every uh, member have the opportunity to read through the Bible at least once a year. That's a goal. Um, okay, I'd be real happy if we hit 50% of us can read through the Bible uh, in a year. I think that's an awesome goal. There's this point where you get in a Bible reading plan where you hit First Chronicles 1 through 9 and you go, Oh my goodness, how many chitlins did then chitlins have, right? Um, it, I would be, I would be, uh, over spiritual if I didn't tell you it's exhausting as you read it. And on first glance, we are real prone to think this is a huge waste of time and space, especially when you think somebody had to pin this down on a piece of stone at some point. But as, as you dig into these chapters, you see there is method in the madness. 
In, in chapters 1 through 3, he begins with, how's this for a genealogy? Adam. The very first man created. He's going to go ten generations from Adam to Seth. Um, and, and then he's, I'm sorry, from Adam to Noah. Then from Noah to Shem. And then he's going to go from Shem all the way to Abraham. From Abraham, he's going to go to Jacob. From Jacob, he's going to go to Judah. And from Judah, he's going to get to David. Thank you, sir. Um, and, and then we get to, that gets you the first three, cha- the three chapters. Yeah, there's a long three chapters. And then in chapters four through nine, the genealogy of all the tribes of the family of Israel traced, but they're traced in particular with two tribes emphasized. One is the tribe of Judah. That's the tribe that David comes from. That would be called the, the, the kingly tribe. The monarchial tribe, if you will. And then there's the tribe of Levi. That's the priestly tribe. That's the tribe of Aaron. Alright, so why does he do this? It gets us to one of the major themes, or two major themes in these two books. There's two themes. One is the line of David. And two is the importance of God's establishment of the temple. One is the line of David, David, and one is the establishment of the temple. Now, why does he take this method? Well, I think by tracing family not lines, we're able to see the deliberate, sovereign control of God through the ages. From the beginning, with creation, With Adam, God began orchestrating His plan. And if you follow those names, what you're going to see is a bunch of unlikelies. You're going to see unlikely Abraham. You're going to see God choose Isaac over natural-born Ishmael. You're going to see God choose Jacob instead of Esau. You're going to see the line of Christ come through Judah instead of the firstborn Reuben, and then you're going to see Saul rejected for David. At all times, God is working. God is electing. God is orchestrating. And God is making a point. I do not need the help of any man, and I do not rely upon human wisdom or human strength. And as such, the chronicle. By biting this off in nine chapters, says to the people returning to the land, you can rest easy. You can rest assured. That is, every name, every life that is represented on that list is a life that God purposely put where He put it at the time He put it, and He knew every detail, and He worked it towards His plan. Rest assured as you walk from Babylon to Israel... That God knows what He's doing. You can rest on His plan. Brothers and sisters, we can likewise rest easy. I know this is a changing world. I know these are difficult times. I know things at times just seem nuts and out of control. I know there are uncertainties. I know many of you represent deep struggles. I know many of you are hurting. I know many of you are discouraged, not knowing exactly what God is doing and why He's doing it and how He's doing it. Every name, 
for nine chapters in the book of First Chronicles represents God working, God choosing, God knowing, God orchestrating, God sovereignly controlling. Now, realize, this does not say or mean that everything's always going to be rosy. But it does mean this. God will do what God will do. And what God has done, what God does is always good and it is always, always right. You know, when you get to a point in life where you settle on the deep, deep roots of the sovereignty of God, I'm telling you, it changes a lot. That is, when you get to a point where you honestly begin to believe every detail of my life is orchestrated by God. Everything. Another way to put it, that you honestly believe this story of my life is already penned by God. He's already written the book of all of history. I'm telling you, when that happens... Everything for you changes because you realize you are now just part and you're glad to be part. You're part of His will. You're part of His plan. You're part of what He's been doing as He has been working a plan through the ages through His people. And that gets us to the next part. Second point. First, God's plan and then God's People, as we look at Chronicles 10 through 20, these chapters are concerned with two main narratives, if you will. First is the story of David bringing the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. Now, Saul, in his stubbornness and ignorance, had left the Ark out in a rural area in a guy's house named Abinadab, and it had stayed there for two decades. David wisely wanted to get the Ark where most of the people were. He wanted to get the ark to the heart of where Jerusalem was in Jerusalem. So, as you look at David trying to get the ark from there to Jerusalem, the story can be told actually through two lives. First is a man named Uzzah. Uzzah was a Levite. Uzzah, his name means strength. He was a tribe of the priests. That's why he's a Levite. It was his dad, Abinadab, whose house the ark had resided in for two decades. David tasked him with, with helping getting the ark to Jerusalem. And we know that at some point, this is recorded in the book, in the chap, in thir- chapter 13 of 1 Chronicles, at some point in the journey, as the ark's on a or is being pulled by a horse on a carriage. The carriage slips and the ark almost falls. And Uzzah reaches out to try to save the ark from falling. And God strikes him dead. Why? Because he disregarded the law of God. And Numbers 4, God had clearly said, The priests are not to touch the holy things of God. Uzzah disobeyed. God took his life. It puts the brakes on this process uh, quite a bit. Uh, they, they leave the ark very close to where this happened and let it reside there. David abandons the project for a while. David was angry with God for striking Uzzah dead, for just trying to save the ark from falling to the ground. How, how could you do that, God? 
Yet, you got to know, according to the first part, this didn't happen by accident. God knew exactly what was happening when that horse slipped and, and that carriage slipped and that ark began to fall. It was never supposed to be carried by a horse to begin with. It was actually the pagan Philistines who carried the ark of the covenant, the, the presence of the symbol of the presence of God on a carriage drawn by horse. It was supposed to be carried by priests. Ironically, Uzzah, whose name means strength, was too lazy to carry the ark, or at least help carry the ark. R.C. Sproul, in his life-changing book, The Holiness of God, I call it life-changing because for me, honestly, uh, probably now 15 years ago when I read it, it was life-changing. He writes this, he said, Uzzah assumed that his hand was less polluted than the earth. But it wasn't the ground that would desecrate the ark. It was the touch of a man. That is so true. Mud, earth has never disobeyed God, its Creator. Man has countless times disobeyed God. If Uzzah cared about the purity of the ark, when it began to slip, he would have ran as fast as he could in the other direction because he, a man, is what can make the ark impure, not the earth that God created. Brothers and sisters, is your Christianity deep enough to handle a God who strikes a man dead for touching a wooden box when He said don't touch it? Now I ask you that because i got to be honest with you. There's a lot of Christianity or that which stands for is called Christianity out there that cannot handle a God like this. We serve a holy God. If He were to break out among us, save for the work of Christ, every one of us would be dead as fast as Uzzah breathed His last. And so when we come to worship, do we know how to come with reverence for this God? I sure hope so. I know that we take worship seriously and there is a deep seriousness about this task here a cornerstone. But I hope it's because we have a deep reverence for this God. That, that we come as fallen creatures to dwell in the presence of the Holy Creator. Worship is a truly awesome task. And it can only happen with a tad bit of mustard seed faith that we bring and the infinite mercy that God brings. He is a holy God. On his first attempt, David chose a Levite whose name meant strength to bring the ark of God to Jerusalem. And he saw how far Uzzah's strength got him. He got him an ark that was parked. A parked ark. I came up with that. Um, David, though, known as a man of repentance. He was a man that was mistaken. But he was a man who repented. He repented and he changed. He changed the way he went about it completely. You go through uh, chapters 14, 15, and 16, and they look very different than chapter 13 of 1 Chronicles. Instead of a guy whose name means strength, he'll get a guy by the name of Kenaniah to lead the process. We see this in 1 Chronicles 15. Kenaniah, whose name means God, Yahweh has established. He will be in charge of leading the music to get the ark 
to Jerusalem. David leads in dancing, in jubilation, as they have priests carry it. Small step after small step, care and reverence to get the ark to Jerusalem. Now, what's interesting about the dancing is if you're a king, you don't dance, at least then. You get people to come dance for you. There's a big occasion, you hire some dancers. That's the way that you show you're a king. They come and they sing and they dance for you. Here's King David, dancing before the ark of God. It is as if David was saying as loud as he could, I am a king, but I'm a king who will dance for the king. I'm a king who will dance for the king. It shows great humility and it shows great joy. While we should come to worship with reverence, we should also come with glad-hearted joy. That is, to worship with joy, short of reverence, is just silliness. But to worship with reverence, short of joy, is cold-hearted, dead religion. If we can remain unmoved in worship, we should be unnerved. A word of caution. (laughs) I think this is a helpful word of caution. May we be wise enough to never equate how one is moved in worship with a mode of expression of worship. That is, there'll be some of us who may show that we're moved in worship by the raising of hands and others that will not cross our mind as a way to show that we're moved in worship. And as the people of God, we say that's just fine. i got to be quite honest. Some of the times I've been most moved in worship, I couldn't utter a word, more or less lift a limb. And yet, the key is that we must come with a worship that is thoughtful, that is mind-engaging, that is reverent, but is joyful of what God has done for us. Well, I said earlier that the, that the uh, chapters 10 through 20 had two main narratives. We looked at God bringing the ark to Jerusalem, and yet there's a second one. It's found in uh, 1 Chronicles 17. So if you're tracking, we're 17 chapters in now. 1 Chronicles 17 is a parallel to 2 Samuel 7. This is the text that Chad focused in on uh, heavily last time. Let me read for you four or five verses from this. 1 Chronicles chapter 17, verse 10 through 14. I think we're going to have this up for you. Here's what it says. And I will subdue all your enemies. Moreover, I declare to you that the Lord will build you a house. This is God talking to David. I'm going to subdue all your enemies. Moreover, I declare to you that the Lord will build you a house. Now remember the context is David goes to God and says, I want to build you a house. And God says back to David, no, 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 no. I I build you a house. (laughs) I love that. When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me and I will establish His throne forever. I will be to Him a father and He shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from Him as I took it from Him 
who was before you, talking about Saul, but I will confirm him in my house and my kingdom forever, and this throne shall be established forever. This is a foundational chapter for all the Bible. Maybe more clear, it's a foundational chapter of all of human history. God makes a promise to David that there will forever be a king on the throne in the line of David. It's a promise made to a man by God. Make sure you understand what we believe. America can come to an end. The sun can stop shining. The earth can stop spinning. All of those can happen. But this promise of God can never fail. There will be a king in the line of David on the throne forever because God said it. And so now you get why the author puts this in there. You got a bunch of people marching back under a Persian king who have been under a Babylonian king coming back to Jerusalem that housed the king that got a promise that said there would be a a king on his throne forever. You know they got to be questioning what happened. And he wants them to know God is still going to keep His promise. So rebuild Jerusalem. Rebuild the temple. And believe that He will bring it to fruition. So to bring some things together, before we get to the final point, God has a plan. He began it with Adam. His plan is that He'll call a people. The first nine chapters was was God saying and declaring, I have been calling, I have been choosing, I have been shepherding. And then the, the, the middle chapters are straight from the text here. I will build a house. I will raise up your offspring. I will establish this kingdom. As God brings the Ark of the Covenant there to Jerusalem, the symbol of the presence of God, He is making a profound point. I have a plan that will come through my people and my people will be those with whom I dwell. Note, the people of God are those with whom God dwells. This is the single most important distinction there can be made. Unequivocally. Literally everything is coming down to this question. Will you be one with whom God dwells or will you be one with whom or for whom God judges? The promise of David is so important here. How? Because it tells us how. It tells us how God will establish a people. He will establish a people through His line in David. And this is why as you get to the Gospel writers, in particular Matthew and Luke, they are so careful to as quick as they can situate us for us who Jesus of Nazareth is in terms of the lineage of Abraham, but in particular the lineage of David. They want to make the argument Jesus of Nazareth is in the line of David because the argument is clear. Jesus Christ is the forever King. And as such, those who put their trust in Him, those who say, 
That's my king. It is those with whom God will dwell. You say, but how could God dwell among us? Don't you remember Uzzah? And the answer is yes, that's where it gets really mysterious in a hurry. God will take all of your offenses, all of my offenses, and He will lay it upon the forever King. He will pay for every one of our crimes. He will pay for every one of our offenses. And He will give us the opportunity to have God dwell with us. Friends, it's not too late. I don't know where you are in terms of this. But are you one with whom God dwells? Or are you one for whom God is going to judge? There's only one way to be one with whom God dwells. You have to bank your life on the forever King. Is King Jesus the King of your life? Does He sit on the throne of your soul? It will matter eternally. It's not too late. Repent and believe today. God has a plan. He's going to make it happen through His people. All because God has a purpose Look with me as we consider the last nine chapters of 1 Chronicles and the first nine chapters of 2 Chronicles. David wanted to build God a house, but God told him, He said, David, there's way too much blood on your hands. You're a man of war. Instead, it's going to have to be Solomon, your son, who will build a house. Now, the author of of Chronicles is really, the chronicler here, is really careful to make sure we know how helpful David was and how God made him helpful in the preparation of building the temple. It was the fact that David secured this warrior, incredible, incredible warrior. He secured and subdued all the enemies of, of the people of God so that there could be a temple to be built. He amassed a amazing amount, a massive amount of wealth to pay for it. He built an infrastructure. He was so crucial to the details that it was David who would lay out the regular duties of the gatekeepers and the musicians and the priests. And these are what we see in the latter chapters of 1 Chronicles as the chronicler walks us through that. He wants the people to know David was involved in the building of this. And it served Solomon well. Solomon was able to complete uh, all the preparations and move forward with building the temple. The first nine chapters of Second Chronicles of Second Chronicles are probably the most positive nine consecutive chapters in all of Scripture. They might be the most positive nine consecutive chapters of all of Scripture. Had I had a little bit more time, I would have traced that down. I was amazed at how positive they are. You go nine chapters without disobedience. What? You can't get three chapters into Genesis before all of mankind falls, right? And it was beautiful, it was good, and they sinned. And we will forever feel the consequences of this, right? Nine chapters and there's no disobedience. You as a biblical reader got to stop and say, what is going on here? That's got to be the question on your mind. It's my question on my mind. Listen to, uh, to the account of Solomon. Here's, here's, here's what we get. Um, in, in the building of all this. As soon as Solomon, this is Second Chronicles chapter 7, 1 through 3. As soon as Solomon finished the prayer, 
He said, the temple fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could enter, could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. This happened. I mean, it really happened. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down, the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and they worshipped and they gave thanks to the Lord saying, He is good and His steadfast love endures forever. Chapters 8 and 9 finish. So that's a picture of the temple and how beautiful it is. Then you get to chapters 8 and 9 and they finish off the life of Solomon and how wise he was, how incredible he was, how much wealth he had. Even the queen of Sheba, probably somewhere around Ethiopia today, marched up to meet him. Now that's overtly positive. We know that because the author of 1 Kings isn't uh, shy about telling us that Solomon had shortcomings. You don't get them in First Chronicles one through nine. You get or Second Chronicles one through nine. You get his entire life, and you think, "My goodness, he lived, was wealthy, wise, did great things, built a temple, and died." Why this overtly positive picture? Well, you know, because it's scripture, it's not unintentional. Man, that's why it's so much stinking fun to read the Bible. Because you know everything's in there for a purpose. You can spend the rest of your life going, I have no idea, let's go. It's awesome. Sometimes you read authors, you'll read an article and go, I wonder why they did that. Who knows, they could have just not known what they were doing, right? (laughs) It's God's Word. Anyway. He can't fool the people of Israel. They know Solomon's shortcomings. They know it well. It hurt them dearly. (laughs) So why, why? I think there's a purpose. I think it's as if the chronicler is saying, folks, my purpose for you is to rule with righteousness and dwell with peace that God meant when He gave you this. I, I want you to enjoy what could have been, if you will. Now follow me. This is, this is at least my reason for why this is. I, I think the temple is incredibly important. I don't think it's just a placeholder. Oh, I don't. I think it is the purpose of God for all the ages. Let me say it again. I believe the temple is the purpose of God for all the ages. Stay with me. I promise it's not much longer. You've done well. I'm impressed. Stay with me. God created the very first temple, not with Solomon, but with a man named Adam. He created it when He created mankind. He created it when He created a place called Eden. It was where God would dwell with mankind. In mankind, the image bearers of God would give back glory to God. Eden was a temple. And they weren't just supposed to sit there and reside. They were to be on mission. God told them, go be fruitful and fill just Eden? No, what did He say? You know this. He said, go fill what? The earth! Spread this thing across the earth. I want the entire earth to be filled of my people. That is, people where I dwell. And I want them to give me glory, to reflect back from me glory across the entire earth. That was the whole purpose. And it's cut short, three chapters in, because of rebellion. Likewise, the first nine chapters of Chronicles are an Eden picture. They show what it could have been if the people of God would actually, actually obey. If they actually would trust who God is and enjoy 
who God was. I think that's why, by the way, the uh, tell of the Queen of Sheba is there. I think it's to show when the when the when God dwells with His people, it will be mission focused. The world will be affected so much so that the Queen of Sheba will come up and go, "I don't get it. What's going on here?" These chapters were intended at that time to encourage the people to rebuild the temple, repent of their sins, trust in the promises of God, and bank on them. And He. And then they would enjoy the blessings of God. But we know that Solomon is a picture of the forever king. Who? King Jesus. David represents King Jesus, the conquering warrior. The king with blood on his hands. Who, who makes payment so that peace might be established. Solomon represents... The risen Jesus. The forever King risen to build His temple. Risen to usher in peace and justice and wealth. This is the purpose of God. God intends to dwell with His people. He intends to change and transform His people so that they may be image bearers and that the earth one day will be the temple of God. You come here, every one of us comes here, longing in our hearts for peace and justice and righteousness. You know it, and I know it. You will only find it, finally, when the King of Kings rules in the temple He's creating. Revelation chapter 21. Now, I only do I preach 40 chapters, but I get all the way to Revelation in there as well. I mean, in terms of complexity, I would think fantasy football-wise, this would up. My, I don't know, is complexity even part of it? I shouldn't. Why did I talk about fantasy football? I have no idea. All right, Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Listen. Verse 2. I saw the holy city. It's the new Jerusalem. It's coming down out of heaven from God. He sees what coming down? A city. Now catch this. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. What? Who marries a city? That's just weird. He saw a city coming down and he says it's prepared like a bride. Yes, the city is a people. The people of God. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. They don't need a king like the other nations. They have a king. Verse 22, And I saw no temple in the city. No temple? For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives its, gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. You've got God dwelling, the glory of Him so bright you don't even need a sun, and you don't need a temple because it is a temple. By its light, 
where the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. Queen of Sheba line up. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. But only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Oh, friend, everything is coming down to this. Everything you currently know Everything you currently know is going to end. And it's all coming down to is your name in the Lamb's book of life. And if it is, your life is going to be unreal. You're going to dwell with God. You're going to be His image here. You're going to give Him glory. As you start a new year, let me beg you, don't be lost in your own story. I know every story counts. But would you lose your story in the grand story? Would you honestly believe this is going to happen? We are laying in bed last night and uh, Heather's asking me about sermon stuff and I said, Heather, why do I treat the Bible like it's a kid's story? Like, I kind of believe it. You know, it's kind of, you know, what? why don't I believe it? Like, it's real. It's really going to happen. I'm begging you, church. It's not a kid's story. It's real. I'm begging you, friend, please, situate yourself in it and figure everything else out from there. Don't start anywhere else because it will come to an end.